If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Let us bow our heads together. It was a microcosm of the misogyny that plays out every day on smaller stages, Holy One. This instance just happened to be quoted directly to a reporter. The state senator from Broken Arrow all but said the first female vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, made her successful career in politics through sexual favors. He all but said it because when it came right down to it, he was afraid, too cowardly to finish his own crass sentence, and he was embarrassed. The story reminds us of the one in Mark, the story of the woman with the alabaster jar who anointed Jesus just before his crucifixion. She understood who Jesus was and what he was doing before anyone else and responded accordingly. But some of the men tried to shame her for it. The text says she made them angry but it's likely that this was the only emotion they knew how to express. Really, they were afraid, too cowardly to do what she did, and they were embarrassed. Not Jesus, though. He responded to her accordingly, with dignity and respect. Of her, Jesus said, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will be told in remembrance of her. So we will continue to do what we know is right, trusting that there will be an ally in the room, even if it's just one, who will respond accordingly, with dignity and respect. We will live and work in ways that keep our tradition unbroken, faithful women of whom it is said, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Keep our hearts soft, our resolve steady, and our hope strong, Holy One. For it is all too easy for us to meet fear with fear and hate with hate. We pray in the name of our teacher Jesus, who wasn't afraid of women. Amen. Well... 
we've made it this far into the service, so either everything is going according to plan with this first live stream of worship, or we are trying to fix everything without looking frantic. It's probably a little bit of both, but I know we will have a list of ways we can do better next time, and yet, before we get there, I want to say how grateful I am for Rick, for Clint, for Janet, for Joanna, for Stephen, Glenda, and Carolyn for getting us to this moment. And thank you, Mayflower, for being ever encouraging and gracious as we find our footing. In the early months of the pandemic, I tried really hard to do what many of you also tried really hard to do, and that was to make a dent in the stack of books piled up waiting to be read. But because it's ridiculous to limit oneself to books already in one's possession, I took advantage of the public library system's oh-so-handy ebooks and audiobooks that you can have delivered, contact-free, right to whatever device you want. But it wasn't just any book that would do during that particular time. As you know, there are some things not specifically covered in seminary, like the correct ashes-to-oil ratio that will achieve brownie batter consistency for the ashes on Ash Wednesday. Seminary also does not specifically cover how to pastor and preach to and pivot a 600-member church during a pandemic. So at the time, I thought I needed to know more about infectious diseases, epidemics, and pandemics, and how we respond to them. I mean, in all honesty, I was vaguely aware that the Spanish flu had happened, and like other millennials, I can identify a boomer by their small vaccine, smallpox vaccine scar. And obviously, this was not adequate pre preparation for what we were and still are facing. So I turned to the online public library and, in my enthusiasm, borrowed a book titled How to Survive a Plague. This seemed right on point. Great, I thought, just the help I need to, to get me in the place I need to be to figure out how to navigate the coronavirus pandemic both personally and as a pastor. As it turns out, the subtitle of that book is The Story of How Activists and Scientists Tamed AIDS. So it, it wasn't exactly what I thought I needed to read, except that it was. I was born in 1983, so while I technically lived through the worst hard times of the HIV-AIDS pandemic, I was too young to know how difficult, desperate, and dark that time was. I've heard stories, of course, but there's always more to learn. HIV-AIDS is technically classified as an epidemic, which is defined as a disease that affects a large number of people within a community, population, or region, but it also fits the definition of a pandemic, which is an epidemic that's spread over multiple countries or continents. I started reading this book about four weeks into my grandma's starting hospice care. She had cancer, made complicated and untreatable because of other conditions, but because of hospice and family, 
My grandma was able to be at home during the last eight weeks of her life, able to receive masked and hand sanitized visits from friends and family who came to hold her hand, sing hymns, and tell stories until the day she slipped away into eternity. They say that death is easy. It's the dying that is hard. But from what I have seen, that's certainly true, although it can be made easier. It requires consistent presence of tender care, someone to wipe your forehead with a cool cloth, someone who will carefully spoon ice chips into a dry mouth, someone who will gently hold your hand and remind you that you are deeply loved. This was how it was for my grandma. This was not how it was for the vast majority of folks dying from AIDS in the 80s and 90s. First, many of them were evicted from their apartments, fired from their jobs, and refused service at various places, including restaurants and churches. Then, from their hospital beds, they watched their food being left outside the door, even when they themselves could no longer walk. Their medications went unmonitored, as did their pain. Calls for help went unanswered, and people died alone. This was on top of everything else. No support from the government for research or funding. Politicians ignored even the opinion of the American Academy of Pediatrics, using AIDS as a weapon against people they already hated, drug users and gay men. Rush Limbaugh actually had a segment on his show during this time in which he mocked people dying of AIDS. When psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote On Death and Dying, tried to establish a hospice for children dying of AIDS near her home, her neighbors protested. It would run everyone off. Remarkably, Dr. Kubler-Ross did not give up. When asked what she was going to do now, she said, I remain an absolute optimist that someday love will conquer fear. Dr. Kubler-Ross knew her Bible. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. While HIV-AIDS hasn't gone away, some things have changed. While there isn't yet a cure, there is, finally, government funding. We know it is not a gay plague simply because in this country it first appeared widely in the gay community, any more than AIDS is an African plague simply because most of the people living now with HIV AIDS are clustered on that continent. This is important to remember should you hear anyone refer to the novel coronavirus as the Wuhan or Chinese virus, just because it first appeared there. It's important to push back against that kind of rhetoric, for we know that it only serves to inspire and increase discrimination and racism against Asian Americans. What has most significantly changed since the close of the 20th century when it comes to HIV AIDS are hearts and minds. This was, of course, due to the tremendous work of activists and scientists insisting that the public know the truth about HIV-AIDS, where it came from and how it spreads, but also, also because there were people who chose love 
over fear. They chose to sit beside the bed, to wipe the brow with a damp cloth, to hold hands, to not let the dying face death alone. Then they raised money, raised awareness, and raised hope by showing up. This is what love does. And this is where we get back to today's text, found in the first letter to John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is of God. Everyone who knows is begotten of God and has knowledge of God. Those who do not love have known nothing of God, for God is love. God's love was revealed in our midst in this way, by sending the only begotten into the world, that we might have faith through the Anointed One. Love, then, consists in this, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and has sent the only begotten to be an offering for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we must have the same love for one another. No one has ever seen God, yet if we love one another, God dwells in us, and God's love is brought to perfection in us. The way we know that we remain in God and God in us is that we have been given the Spirit. We have seen for ourselves and can testify that God has sent the only begotten as Savior of the world. When any acknowledge that Jesus is the only begotten, God dwells in them and they in God. We have come to know and to believe in the love God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in him and God in them. Love will come to perfection in us when we can face the day of judgment without fear because our relation to this world is just like Christ's. There is no fear in love, for perfect love drives out fear. To fear is to expect punishment, and anyone who is afraid is still imperfect in love. We love God because God first loved us. If you say you love God but hate your sister or brother, you are a liar. For you cannot love God whom you have not seen if you hate your neighbor whom you have seen. If we love God, we should love our sisters and brothers as well. We have this commandment from God. It's a good one, right? Lots of little darlings, as we call them in the preaching world. One-liners you can drop in almost anywhere, and they work. God is love. Perfect love casts out fear. Love one another, for love is from God. You get the idea. And at first, it kind of seems like a light reading. It's, it's an easy read. Who is going to disagree with the idea that we should love one another because love is from God? Everyone can get behind that idea. Indeed, theologian David Bartlett notes that 1 John is much loved by a certain strain of humanists. If God is love, why have two words for the same thing? It is at least somewhat easier in a skeptical age to believe in love than to believe in God, they say. If God is love, then love is God. It sounds pretty good, if God is love, then love is God. But an abstraction like love, with a capital L, is a little, well, too abstract. 
For the author and the community to whom they wrote, it is not exactly the simple equation some would like it to be. Indeed, God is love, but love is not God. Love is personification, and God is the person. Love is something. God does things, and you heard it. God sends the only begotten to save the world. Scholars think this letter was written because the Christian community was becoming less grounded in doing and more in believing, specifically that Jesus was just a spiritual being who only appeared to be human. Very tricky. But the author of the text reminds this early community that love is much grittier. Or to say it another way, love is not a noun, it is a verb. The text reminds us that for the Christian community in 1 John, the claim that God is love is rooted in Jesus, his work and ministry, which led to execution by the state and then the inability of death to end the Jesus story, which we call the resurrection. There are plenty of folks who would rather leave the cross behind, and I understand that instinct. It has become obscured by blood atonement theology and doctrine rooted in cosmic child abuse. I actually wrote a whole sermon deconstructing that kind of theology for today, but on Thursday I realized it was a lecture, not a sermon. So instead, I'll say this, God is always calling us and sending us to save the world. Jesus responded so fully to that call and sending forth that we are still talking about his life and ministry. This is love. God is not just sending thoughts and prayers to save the world. God is sending us to save the world. We can say that we love people all day long, but the proof is in the doing. This is why we keep coming back to the story of Jesus. We are not Christians because it will get us a heavenly parking spot or help us avoid spending the afterlife in a giant ashtray. We are Christians because the character of Jesus is so compelling that we want to spend our lives chasing it, embodying it, and sharing it. We continue the work of loving the world into abundant life, just as Jesus showed us. I'll be the first to admit that this seems kind of hard lately. Love does not seem to be winning right now. The transgender community is under attack all over the country. Here at home, Governor Kevin Stitt signed three anti-abortion bills into law last week made Oklahoma a so-called Second Amendment sanctuary state, and gave protection to drivers who run over protesters. As an Oklahoma legislator, and to top it off, an Oklahoma legislator compared the Black Lives Matter movement to the KKK. It has been a really hard week. How in the world can we believe that all of this will be made right? Well, we too know our Bibles. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. We know that fear cannot 
survive proximity, as author Glennon Doyle writes, so we commit to turning towards each other when things get scary or when the authorities tell us that we should be afraid, very afraid of certain people or ideas, or when we are told that things will never change because we know that love does the things that make for change. It is why we should find ourselves in places we have been warned away from, listening and learning from people who have been silenced or pushed out, regularly peeling away our privilege, our assumptions, our stereotypes. It is why the church doors are open to recovery and support groups that need a place to meet. It is why we work for restorative justice, even if we've never spent a night in jail, and why we hold vigil for immigration justice when all of our family is here. It is why this primarily white congregation is worrying less about being called racist and more concerned about being anti-racist. Love does. And there are a thousand different ways to embody this kind of faithful love in our day-to-day -day interactions. A conversation with the neighbor over the fence, the one whose music is a little too loud, a handwritten note, the phone call just to check in, the meal delivered, tennis shoes for those experiencing homelessness, extending grace when the last straw has already been declared, taking care of someone who cannot return the favor. Love does. As Bill Coffin once preached, it is love that banishes fear and prejudice, that allows us to grow in understanding freedom and compassion. It was love that made Jesus faithful unto death, even death on the cross. So it is that we, too, can hold the line, cling to hope, believe that things can change and work to make that change. Indeed, we who live in Jesus' name can do nothing less. And this is what we really need to know, no matter what it is that we face. It is how we know what to do. It is not a flimsy slogan. God is love, so we love one another. Love is not an abstraction, it is action. Let us be living proof. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are currently online only, premiering at 11 a.m. on Mayflower's Facebook page. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.